Dr. Harry Walls spent most of his life pastoring in the state of Alabama. Just recently, in the last couple of years, has moved to Los Angeles, is part of the Masters University staff, which is in the Los Angeles area, town of Santa Clarita. I know we have a couple of our students that are at the Masters University now. I think it's the best, in my opinion, college, university, and seminary in the United States. By, I just don't even know anybody's even close. I've felt that way for many years, and I hope you'll have a moment maybe to stop by the booth. One of the uh, students from the Masters University is here, Michael Jackson. I think we'll have him share a little this morning. Not the singer, but the U Masters University student. And so he'll be outside, and he'll have a booth, and he'll be glad to tell you about it. And you don't go there just because the weather's great, and it's got the beaches, and got the whole Southern California vibe going. It's a great university, and I know you'll hear that this morning from Dr. Walls as he comes and he shares. The other thing I think is important for you to know as he introduces himself, and you get to know him this morning, the Lord used him to reach Coach Ron Brown. And many of you have heard Ron speak at our school over the years. Ron is now at Liberty University, but very few men that I've known over the last probably 30 years have influenced the state of Nebraska for the gospel like Coach Ron Brown. And it was Dr. Walls that first really influenced Coach Brown to come to know who Christ was when they were teammates at Brown University. So I think I'll let uh, Dr. Walls come. Uh, he'll share with you, and I'm hoping you'll kind of tell the story and your connection with Coach Brown. Let's welcome Dr. Harry Walls. Just coming in here today and seeing your faces. I know it's early, but you seem awake and alive and moving, and thank you for the worship. Thank you for uh, that time of stirring our heart. I, in my ministry in Birmingham, I served 27 years there as a senior pastor, and we had a Christian school, K-3 through 12, and uh, we would gather like this periodically in our sanctuary and worship together, and it just reminded me today, just hearing you sing and being with you, it's a joy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm old. I, uh, I did go to Brown University with Ron Brown back in 1976. So 76 to 78, I was a Brown University football player with Ron, and um, we, he was a defensive back. I was a wide receiver. I grew up in southern New Jersey. He grew up in New England, Massachusetts, and um, we met there. He, I would go up against him in practice, and we played together, and I uh, left Brown University. to uh, God uh, made it clear to me that my future was not pre-medicine, which was what I was studying there, but that I would be involved in uh, pastoral ministry. So I left Brown to go to Liberty, which is where Ron is right now, as an assistant or head football assistant, head football coach, I think is how they call it. And uh, I, I left, came out to California to the Master's College at that time. I served as the campus pastor at Liberty University, went to seminary there, and then out to California to serve with John MacArthur as the dean of men at the Master's College. And uh, spent three years there, then back to Alabama, and spent 22 years there and headed out to Houston, Texas for a, what was called a Mission America meeting. And this is connected to the Ron Brown story. So I'm, 22 years after Ron and Harry played football together, I was in Houston, Texas, at a large hotel, probably uh, 400 people at this uh, gathering uh, of ministry individuals who were endeavoring to reach the city, their respective city all over the nation for Christ. And we gathered together to, to share input, perspective. There were keynote speakers. And on the second night that I was there, the grand ballroom was set up with round tables. And the deal was, you would go, I had six guys fly from Birmingham out to Houston with me. They were part of City Reaching in Birmingham. And uh, you were supposed to go into the ballroom, sit around these round tables, but not with people you came with so that you would get to know other persons in the country that were serving the Lord in the ways that you desired and kind of network and share and learn. And So I'm, I'm sitting at this table with people I don't know. We're introducing ourselves, and across the table from me, the gentleman introduced himself. I don't remember his name. He said he was from Baltimore, Maryland, and he said he was a graduate of Harvard University. 
And I went to Brown, which is an Ivy League school too, and I never meet anybody in gospel ministry from the Ivy League, and that caught my attention. And I said, hey, I went to Brown. He said, hey, I went to Harvard, and we chat a little bit, and that's about all there was said, and guys introduced themselves around the table, and when I got the guy next to me, he leaned over and he looked at my name tag, and then he asked this question. He said, did you play football at Brown? Which, I didn't say that, I said I went to Brown. I left Brown after two years. I was the third string wide receiver. Um, I played when the game was decided, I was that guy. And I left Brown to go to Liberty. And uh, I'm going, yeah, I played football at Brown, but why do you ask? He said, well, do you know Ron Brown? And I said, Ron Brown, I honestly was so old I couldn't remember. Um, I'm thinking, trying to remember who Ron Brown was, and uh, he goes, yeah, he's a, a receivers coach at Nebraska, coaches at University of Nebraska. And I said, no, nah, yep, no, the Ron Brown I knew was a defensive back. He said, no, 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 he was a defensive back at Brown. I said, well, then I know Ron Brown. And uh, I said, yeah, we, we played together. My mind's starting to work, and I'm kind of remembering. And, and uh, so I, I said, why are you asking? He looked at my name tag again, and he said, because I think you're in his book. I said, he's written a book? He said, yeah, Ron Brown is kind of famous in Nebraska. He travels all over with FCA speaking. He's a born-again Christian. He's, he's a gospel preacher. And, and there's this guy in his book. I'm reading his book, he said, to his eight-year-old son at night. Ron Brown story or whatever. And uh, there's this guy in his book. He never played, wasn't much of an athlete. <laughs> yeah, I did not laugh. <laughs> And he left Brown to go to seminary. Well, I got goosebumps right there. Because, um, and this guy influenced Ron to become a Christian. And uh, there wasn't anybody that left Brown to go to seminary but me. And uh, this guy's telling me this story and how this guy influenced Ron and and I'm, I'm, I'm got goosebumps because I'm going, man, I had no idea. I had no idea. And it was a little taste of heaven, um, just because I think it'll be true in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you choose to live for him. There are going to be people there that you influence that you didn't know you influenced. Because I don't ever remember sharing the gospel with Ron Brown. But somehow Ron Brown used my life as a means to attracting him to the Savior that he now follows and preaches about. And uh, so anyway, this guy's name was Mark Pomeroy. He's from Lincoln. He's an FCA guy. He came back to Lincoln, told Ron Brown he'd met me. Uh, Ron sent me his book, which in this book, it's called, the, is it called Gordon I Can? Is that the name of the book? Yeah, I Can. But if you read that book, you'll you'll figure out that he, Ron Brown, thinks I can't. Um, he, 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 uh, he did not think much of me as an athlete. <clears throat> and uh, chapter 6 in that book, I think, is entitled, Whatever Happened to Harry? Because after he talks about the athlete I wasn't, he talked about the Christ who was that he saw in my life, and he sent me his book. And I I blocked out all the parts that talked about my lack of speed and capacity. Um, but he sent me his book, and uh, we reconnected. And William out to Birmingham. He spoke to my Christian school, like I'm doing here today at your Christian school. Um, spoke to my church. <clears throat> came out multiple times. I just had him out to California at the Masters University to speak to our athletes. And just ironically and providentially, and we'll shift gears here in a minute because I want to open God's Word with you, but part of the reason why Ron Brown saw something in me is because of a book that he now promotes that I read as a senior in high school that basically promoted the idea. It's called the Handbook of Athletic Perfection. Playing for the glory of God is what it's about. Because athletics is more than winning and losing. I tell my athletes, you can win without succeeding as a Christian. You can put more points on the board 
than the other team and still not succeed as a Christian because it's not the end game with God. It's how you do what you do. It's why you do what you do that defines success as a Christian. So you can win without succeeding. And if you're a Christian, in God's point of view, you can succeed without winning. Because God's definition of winning is playing for His glory, playing the right way. Well, I read that book as a senior. And uh, when I got to Brown in my sophomore year, and it was obvious I wasn't going to play or start, I really contemplated leaving football. Because at Brown, you could still get your scholarship money without playing your sport. And I was a pre-medicine person, and I thought, well, hey, it'll be better for me if I, I just study. I'm not going to be a pro football player, obviously. I can't start for my university team. My future doesn't look real good here because the two guys that beat me out are the same class I'm in, sophomores. So I'm going to quit. That was my plan. Focus on my education. Called my dad. He, he has said, Harry, I'll support you in whatever you want to do. I called my best friend from southern New Jersey who had gone to Liberty as a wrestler. And he said, coming out of the book we read, he said, so let me get this right, Harry. You can play for the glory of God, but you can't practice for the glory of God. And I don't know as a Christian and how long you've been a Christian, if you are one, um, you have those moments when God talks to you. You know He's spoken to you. Whether it's when you're reading His Word or a message that's preached, I'm hopeful that He'll speak to you today through something that we see and say together from God's Word. But my friend, when he said, you can practice for the glory of God, penetrated. I didn't quit. I went back to football practice the next day, and I began to practice for the glory of God. And if you read Ron's book, part of what confused Ron is how a guy like me who never played could be so happy. And the reason he could be so happy is not because he didn't get it, but because he was playing for a different reason. And that's what he saw. Harry practicing for the glory of God, who never played. Ron played and wasn't happy. Ron's in the Brown Football Hall of Fame. He's a two-time first-team All-Ivy League defensive back. Ron walked on in a number of NFL teams. Ron Brown is a bona fide athlete. He played. He succeeded in the ways that most people would be proud and excited. He just wasn't happy because he didn't have what makes you satisfied and happy. And that's a relationship with the living God. No matter how much you succeed in life, you can't have life without having God. Without having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I tell you that really as, a, as an encouragement that God can use anybody, even a nobody, to reach somebody. Because God is the issue. Christ is the issue. And if you'll live your life for Him, if you'll play for His glory, work for His glory, practice for His glory, study for His glory, who knows how God will use you for His glory. And that's really the part of the Ron Brown story you may not hear. But that's the part I know. And uh, he's been in my home. He's with Mulvina and their girls. And just the joy that we share because of the union we have in Christ is really unrivaled. I'm so proud of him, so grateful to God for him. And I know if you're in Nebraska, you've been influenced at some level because of his ministry. But success is measured differently for a Christian. So with that little bit of a statement and introduction, which is longer than I expected, let me uh, invite you to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. And I want to talk about success today. I want to do two things with you today, if time permits. Number one, I want to talk about the measure of success, the measure of your life. I want to talk about the measure of true success. How are you going to measure? Did you have a great week? Did you have a great month? Did you have a great school year? Did you have a great season? How are you going to measure that? Well, it depends what the measuring stick is. May I ask you a question? Was Steve Jobs successful? You know who he is? Anybody want to tell me? Steve Jobs. You know that name? He's not alive now. He's dead. But do you know who he is? Anybody? Yes? Not a trick question. Yes. Who is he? Apple. Steve, if you have an iPhone, 
you, know, you should know Steve Jobs. If you have a MacBook, you should know Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, American entrepreneur, marketer, inventor, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Apple Incorporated. Born in 1955, passed away in October of 2011. He is recognized widely as the charismatic pioneer of the personal computer revolution. When I went to Brown, I brought the other brand. I bought a K-Pro 2. They were the competitor to Apple. If I'd have bought the Apple and kept it, I could sell it for a bunch. Steve Jobs, I missed the mark with that choice. And for his influential career in consumer electronics, he was, became well-known, co-founded and served, you may not know this, as the chief executive of Pixar Animation Studios. He became the member of the board of the directors of the Walt Disney Company. He is the engine between, behind the development of the iMac, iTunes, iPod, iPhone, and the iStores, the Apple Stores, the App Store on the Internet. Steve Jobs died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 56, and he was worth billions of dollars. And he died a Buddhist. When he died, his sister Patty and his children and his life partner, Loreen, were by his bedside and his final words were said to be, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Question, was Steve Jobs successful? Well, it depends. Depends on how you measure I think if you ask most people, was Steve Jobs successful, they would say, yes, he was. Hard to be more successful than Steve Jobs if you're a businessman. Look with me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and I want to talk about God's view of success. The way you need to measure yourself. Because this is the way that God is going to measure us. Really, all of us, including Steve Jobs. This is Mark 12, just a bit of background. This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is Passion Week. He'd come to town on Palm Monday with great applause. Crowds in front, crowds at the back. Hail King of David, Son of David. Hail Jesus as King. He looked around, came to town, looked around, received great applause, went back to Bethany to stay with his friends, came into town on Tuesday and trashed the temple. Said, this is my father's house. It shall not be a house of merchandise, but a house of prayer for all nations. This is not what the father's house is to be. Well, that obviously alienated his enemies. They already hated him. He has resurrected Lazarus. People are gone ballistic. They think, my goodness, who is this guy? Crowds are coming all over. The upper crust leadership of Judaism was threatened in terms of their influence and power. They called him a blasphemer, not the son of God and a miracle worker. They did everything they could to take him out of play. He's in town and he's just ruined their main station of business. He's embarrassed them. They're angry at him. He's threatening them. And they want to kill him. This is Wednesday the day after the temple was trashed. This is the day that was one wave of assault after another. They conspired together, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe what the Pharisees believed, but they teamed up and conspired because Jesus was the enemy and they needed to take him out. So they sent a series of tests, a series of traps, and the first one was a political trap. In chapter 12, it's... Do you pay taxes or not if you're a Jew? If you don't pay taxes, Caesar's not going to like you. If you pay taxes, the Jews aren't going to like you because they consider that allegiance to the Romans, which was blasphemous. So Jesus said, you remember what he said? He held up the coin whose image is on this coin. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Then along came a Sadducee, test number two. Not a political one, but a theological one. It was about marriage, resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they wanted to know this guy, gal married seven different guys, brothers, and they all died. Whose husband will she be in heaven? Jesus said, you don't get it. There's no marriage or giving of marriage in heaven. You don't get anything. You don't get the fact that 
God lives and He's the God of the living and not the dead. You don't get the resurrection and the afterlife at all and He confounded them with His answers. But then He has a legal test, which is the focus we're in on today. And this houses the measuring stick of your life. And I want you to read with me verse 28, third test, third wave. Not a theological one, but a legal one. Verse 28, Mark 12, and one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. That's referring to the previous test, the Sadducees and Jesus. And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, so he passed that test. What commandment is the foremost of all? Now, Now look up for a minute. Let me tell you what he's asking him. What is the most important thing in the world to God? Now, there are 613 commandments, 365 negative ones, 248 positive ones. There's a negative commandment in the Old Testament, things not to do for every day of the year. 248 was considered to be the generations of men. That's how many generations were said to have existed. And there was a positive commandment for 248 generations of men. The question was, the Pharisees believe, and they had books, the Talmud, just books. There were 23 pages on the Sabbath and keeping it holy. How far you could go, what you could do, how you could do it, what you couldn't do. The Pharisees were full of minutiae. There were 6,000 of them, and the scribes, the legal experts, were responsible for not only writing it out, but writing out how you applied the law and how you enforced the law. So those 613 became reams of books about how to live for God according to God's standard. There were others who said, no, it's not about all the specifics, but it's about the main thing. They tried to reduce the law down to a central theme core. This is a debate between those who think All of the details are important, and those who would like to reduce it down to a central core. Jesus makes a choice right here as to what direction he's going to go. And what he does is so very valuable to you and to me. Because he takes the entire Old Testament and everything that God desires and requires, and he boils it down to one central priority. And I'm calling it the measure of our life. This is what matters. If you were asking God, what matters to you the most? Jesus is asked a question. What is the foremost commandment? The one at the top. The one that's ahead of all others. In Matthew 22, the parallel passage, what's the greatest one? Which is the one with the most weight? If you don't get anything else, which one should you do? And Jesus says, upon these hang all the law and all the prophets. This fulfills the law. You get this right, you get me right. You do what I desire and I require. It is the true measuring stick of your life. I don't care what kind of athlete you are, what kind of student you are, what kind of business person you are. I don't care what kind of teacher you are, what kind of preacher you are, what kind of leader you are. The measure of your life is did you do what was most important of all according to the One who made you for His glory, God? Isaiah 43.7, one of my favorite reminders about a worldview of life. God says, I formed you for My glory. You exist for Me. I made you for Me. I didn't make you for you. I didn't make you for somebody else. I made you for Myself. And the first and great commandment. Let's read it together. So you looked up for a while. That's the background context. Here it is. What's the foremost of all? Now Jesus is going to do what no other rabbi had ever done. He's going to link some things together. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The foremost is, the head of the class, the most important commandment, is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now this is called the Shema. It comes from the imperative Hebrew word for here. It's an emphatic word. It's a loud word. Uh, when I, 
I, I stayed at, in the girls' dorm last night in the little guest area, and somebody was loud this morning. And they were loud saying, don't be late, don't be late. Do you remember who said that? I don't know who that was, but somebody was screaming, was that you? Yeah, okay, thank you. You were my alarm to make sure I was moving. But the, the loud, assertive sound, which is really saying, here, come on, here, come on. This is, this is the Shema, the imperative here, with that emphasis and tone, come on, don't miss this, don't be late was said twice a day, morning and evening, in every Jewish home, these words. These words were written and put on top of every door, every bedroom, every living space, and the entrance to the home. They were put in little cylinders, little leather pouches, phylacteries. The, during the time of prayer, a Jewish... Orthodox Jew would have this on his wrist and on his forehead. Because what Deuteronomy 6 says is every time the Shema is stated, it's to be a reminder wherever you go. Write it on the doorpost. Put it over every room. Say it throughout the day. Every synagogue service would begin with this statement. If we were starting today as a Jewish person, I would have begun with, Hear. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, Jehovah. The God of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jehovah. Yahweh. Is God. Elenu. Plural. Our God is one collective one. Now this is what would have been said. Our God is unique like no other God. Our God is plurality in unity. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God of the Bible is relational. And you can't be relational if you're absolute one. In order to love, there has to be another one to love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence, triunity. God, God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, our God, Israel, is one of a kind. There is no other. He's unique, and He's first. When it says that He's one, it has two emphases. One is He's collective one, plurality and unity, but He's first. And let me tell you what a Jew was saying, and they affirmed that constantly. And this is the first priority to measure your life by. Don't ever forget God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity, plurality in unity, is God alone. And there is no other. Now here's a measuring stick for your life. And I think it's one that you're going to have to keep repeating because they did because it's easy to forget it because there's a lot of competition for God and the first one you'll meet is the one you see in the mirror in the morning. Am I going to be God in my life today or is the one and only God going to be God in my life? There's not room for two. Is my best friend, is my, my passions, my interest, my, my sport, my hobbies, my computer, my games, my friends... Who's going to be God in my life today? And Jesus said, if you want to get the most important measuring stick of all right, it starts with the declaration, morning and evening and throughout the day, honestly, sincerely, God is God alone. He's first. He's foremost. He's unique. He's like no other. And listen to me. He's to be worshipped uniquely. There's to be nobody that competes with Him. Now, if there's something other than God, as God in your life, including you, today, you don't succeed. And if that's the pattern of your life, whether you're Steve Jobs and worth, or worth billions and known for famous business accomplishments, you fail. Because if you fail at this, you fail. If you don't do what God wants most, how can you be successful? 
Do you guys say amen in Nebraska Christian? Can you say amen to that? That's your way of saying, yeah, yeah I agree with that. Am I right or wrong? Amen or not? Amen. That's true. So how do you demonstrate to God that you are God alone in the way that He deserves and desires? Here's the second part of the measuring stick. I'm going to boil it down to one word and then unpack it quickly. Love me. Love me first. Love me best. Love me with all you've got. Love me. Now listen. I love my car. I love my dog. I love Southern California. I like the weather. I don't like the traffic, but I like the weather. I love Alabama football and, yes, Nebraska football because I've been a fan for a while. But that kind of love is not this kind of love. Biblically, love is the highest affection with the most committed action. Highest affection. The highest affection you can express is found in the term love. It involves special devotion and committed action. It's not just words you say, it's things you do. Highest affection. Special devotion, committed action. It is the biggest word in the human language. It's a word of relationship that proves itself in action. Watch the words. This is how you prove God is God of God alone. This is how this flows. Connective and, verse 30, and. Because that's true is a way you could read this. And you shall love the Lord your God. Now notice the word your. It's, it's singular. It's individual. It's you. It's not your like us, the group. It's not a collective your. It's a you. You shall love the Lord your God. Personal. You see the word with? It's a Greek preposition out of. Out of your heart. Out of your soul. Out of your mind. Out of your strength. Now, the reason I want to make a big deal of that is because what God wants comes from the inside out. Sometimes in a Christian community, Christian school, Christian church, it can be outside, but not inside. You put it on, but you don't have it inside. What God, Christianity, what Jesus Christ, what God deserves, what God desires, is your highest affection coming from the inside out. It's, it's coming, it's sincere, it's authentic. And it's radical. Because it's all, with all, out of all your heart. With all, this is the word used most here, all. With all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. If I'm first, prove it. If I'm God and God alone and I'm uniquely God, love me uniquely. Love me above all others. Love me out of your heart, out of your soul, out of your mind, and out of your strength. That's what I want. That's what I deserve. That's a commandment. It's an imperative. It's right. If God's God, this is right to love God's what God wants the most. That's what He desires the most. Let's talk about heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me tell you what I believe. I don't believe. I think if He wanted to say, "Love you me with all you got," He would have said it. And He is saying, "Love me with all you've got," but He breaks it down into four categories for a reason. Because there are aspects to your loving of God that are nuanced. They're categories of focus. And I want to just highlight them for you for the sake of time today. And then I want to ask you, so how are you doing? Are you successful? Are you keeping the great commandment, the thing that's most important all of, of all about your life today? Are you aiming at that? Well, measure yourself this way. Are you loving God by loving Him with an all in resolution of your heart. All in resolution of your heart. 
Now the word heart, cardias, in this context, referred to the core of your personal being, your moral will center. Your heart in this context has to do with your will. It has to do with the moral center decision point of your life. What am I committed to? And the way I like to say this, Harry, are you loving me? Are you all in? Are you committed? This is an all-in commitment. The book of Proverbs counsels, watch over your heart. That's the moral control center with all diligence. Chapter 4. For from it flow the springs of life. This is the moral core of a human being as defined by their will. This is not your affections. This is your convictions. This is not circumstantial. This is not situational. This is not fair weather love. This is not conditional love. Are you sold out, bought in, convinced and committed? Are you full bore? Are you dating God or are you committed in covenant like a marriage with God? This is about covenant commitment. When you love God with all your heart, you're saying, God, I'm all in. The most important decision you will make with regard to God and what He deserves and desires begins with, I'm committed. I'm all in. You've got all my heart. In 1982, I stood in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I looked across at a girl and said, I'm all in. Doesn't matter whether the weather's fair or the wind's blowing our way. Doesn't matter if you're pretty the rest of your life as you are today. Doesn't matter if it's easy or it's hard. Doesn't matter if you're sick or healthy. I'm all in. What God deserves and desires is an all-in commitment from your heart. A decision. I read something. An older couple said to a young couple who was getting married, the key to marriage. And I want to use this as a parallel. I like it. I think it'll be helpful. I think it's an important seed to plant in your young heart. This is what they said. A covenant of resolve protects love. They said to this young couple, your love is priceless. It needs to be guarded. Selfishness, pride, lack of forgiveness, and inattentiveness are but some of the many thieves capable of stealing away your love. In a sense... Your marriage is like a treasure chest. It forms a protective casing around your love, preventing your love from being stolen. Treasure chests have hard sides, and the hardness protects what's on the inside. Now listen to this. Many people live with a false assumption that love enables a marriage to survive. That is not the case. Your love will not ensure your marriage will survive. It is your marriage which will ensure your love will survive. The reason God ordained marriage is because marriage, a covenant commitment, a covenant resolve, an all-in commitment keeps love alive. Not love keeping marriage alive. Now, if you don't remember anything else, you remember that. A commitment to love protects love. Feelings of love will come and go. Affections and passions will ebb and flow. Are you committed to love God all in? Number two. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul. This is suitcase. Not like suitcase you carry. Suitcase like psychology. The mind. This is, or the soul, rather. This is the inner you. The word suitcase has to do with your emotions and your passions. Your feelers. It's a word which actually means your breath. It's like this is life to you. You know, some people say music, it's my life. Talk about music that's soul music. It's like coming out of me. It's who I am. It's the deepest me. It's that word. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17 and Matthew chapter 26, He said, my soul is deeply grieved. It's where I feel. 
suitcase has to do with emotions and passions, the real you, the you at the core, the deepest you, your desires, your feelings, your dreams, your longings. I'm not talking about loud expressions. I'm talking about the deepness of your soul. What you live for. The term soul is closest to what we would call emotion. It's the word Jesus used when He was feeling emotions. Out of my soul. I want to know what's life to you. What brings tears to your eyes? My wife is a horse person. We owned horses back in Alabama. I watch her. She loves horses. I love her. I am the ranch hand, but I don't love horses like she loves them. She'll get tears in her eyes. We live in Placerita Canyon, Santa Clarita, right north of uh, Los Angeles, and we live on a horse trail. My road is a dirt road, and horses ride by my house every day. And I'll be with my wife, and it's not uncommon to see a tear rolling down her cheek. Memories of the horses she had, longings. She loves horses. My son, Parker, 20. I've been with him at a motorcycle shop because we, we like things that go fast without the maintenance of a horse. Horses are a bottomless pit, man. You've got to feed them and clean up. It's endless. But she loves it. But he and I are into engines. I've been with my son at the motorcycle shop and a guy firing up an inline four with a slip-on exhaust and tears will come to my son's eyes. Just, what's up, buddy? You okay? Oh, that's just music. It's, it's, it's where he lives. I don't know where you live, what brings joy to your heart, what moves you. But this is what the God of everything is saying. I want that for me. I want you to love me with all you've got. That. I don't know if you saw this Adidas commercial, but Derrick Rose, who used to play for the Chicago Bulls. You guys know who he is? Derrick Rose, anybody? MVP, NBA, anybody? Yeah? This is Nebraska, but it's not that far from Chicago. He's with the New York Knicks now. They did a commercial. They showed his kind of glitzy lifestyle. Big house, big car, lots of bling. And this is the, this is the way the commercial, the commercial went. They showed all of that glitzy stuff. And then they have Rose come on and you hear his voice and he says, if you took away all of the fame, all of the applause, if you took away all of the money, all of the spotlight, what would you have left? This is his voice after showing all of his stuff. And they go to a cut to the gym and they, you watch Derrick Rose stuff a basketball and he says, if you took it all away, what would you have? Everything. Because basketball to me is everything. All the rest of the stuff, oh, I like it, but it's not life to me. You know what God wants to be for you? Everything. I want you to love me with that. I want you to have tears in your eyes for me. I want you to want me more passionately than you want anything else. Anybody else? Anything else. I want you to love me with all your soul. Your breath. This is what you live for. Anybody say amen to that? Does that make sense? Look, if you're the first and the greatest in God of all and the best of all, the purest of all, the biggest of all, the, the greatest of all, and you say, I want you to love me from the inside out. I want you to be all in and I want it to be all you've got. All your passion for me. Oh, and I want you to love me with all your mind. I want you to love me with your mind. Love me with an intentional mind. Dianoia. Noios is the Greek word for mind. Dia is an intensive. It's a way of saying, I want you to intentionally, with focus, with dedication, with concentration, I want you to love me with this. I want you to be all in. I want you to be all you've got. And I want you to be all on. I want you to be dedicated with your mind to loving me. Why? I want you to know me. I want you to, to get to know me. I want you to intentionally seek me. Do you know what the average attention span, according to the Associated Press, was for the average American in 2012? Average attention span. Eight seconds. Average attention span in the year 2000? Twelve seconds. 
So we're going down in our attention span, and the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. So we're now below a goldfish in our ability to focus. Every teacher said, amen, I get that. Um, listen, we have an attention problem in our culture. We have these distractions. Most of us carry them, a phone. When I'm sitting at the table, my phone is not allowed to be on the table and it can't be in the ring mode. There's this strange thing my wife desires with her husband. She wants me to pay attention to her. Not answer a text, not take a call, not respond to a latest news feed. She wants my attention. She wants my concentration. You know who else does? God does. He wants this on. He wants it to be dedicated, concentrated, full attention, full on. You go on a date and look around. You may not get on a second date. Because the person you're with wants to be with you. Relationship requires attention, determination, dedication of your mind. I'm going to ask, what occupies your mind? We live in a shallow culture, especially with God. We're like, we just don't think deep about God at all. There's a lot to know. This has to do with loving God by knowing and seeking to know more about Him. This is reading, reflecting, studying, meditating, writing. It's remembering. I mean, Peter said, stir up your mind. Remember what God has said to you. 2 Peter 3.1 Stir up your mind to remember words spoken beforehand. 1 Peter 1.13 Prepare or gird your mind. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, 16 and 17, Spirit of God, enlighten their mind. I pray that the spirit of the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they could think, they could know knowledge and revelation of God, what God who God is and what God has done. You got to use your mind. We're in a feel-good, shallow culture. God wants you to love Him with your mind. Are you all on? And let me just say this, kind of a parallel thought. Protect your mind. Protect your mind. Loving God with all your mind involves loving Him by promoting His honor and truth in your mind and with your mind. Be careful with what you put in your mind. Images, music, art, books, things that compete with and combat the things of God. Don't trade away rich thoughts for corrupt thoughts for the sake of entertainment. It shocks me what Christians are willing to watch, listen to, enjoy that have nothing to do with honoring God, living for God. They actually compete with God. Now listen, I'm not a legalist. The reason I'm at the Master's University is because we're about heart transformation. I'm all about your heart. But the way to your heart is through your mind. What you watch, what you see. Don't do things that compete with God. Don't put them in your mind. That's the battleground today. And the world's good at it. The culture's saturated with it. If you're going to love God with all your mind, I had a guy in my church, he ran an automobile shop, and I'd get my little Mazda repaired there, and I'd go in, and you know how tool shops are, machine shops, they have posters on the wall, and they have posters of pretty girls on the wall. Now, these were not inappropriately dressed girls, but there were lots of young girls on the wall from the snap-on guy, and from the craftsman guy, and this tool company and that tool company. I walked in there and I said, Jim, let me ask you a question. How come there are no big pictures of your wife in this room? And tell me how do you think she would feel if she came into the shop with all of this and not a single picture of her? You know what she would say? I don't feel like I'm first. I'm not sure you love me first. I'm not being valued first. That's what happens. You've got these posters in your mind. If you're saying God is first, He's got to be first in your mind. Protect it. And finally, and I have to get done. This is so valuable and important. Not because I'm saying it. Because God says it. Love me with all your strength. This is all out. 
So we got all in, all you've got, all on, and all out. Wide open. This is effort. This Greek word has to do with effort. This is sweat. This is put forth every effort to the point of pain. This is sweating effort. This is breathing hard effort. This is not running sprints at half speed. No coach who wants you to be your best is going to be satisfied with a lazy, casual jog. They want you all out. God wants you all out. All out seeking Him in His Word. All out in ministry. All out in service. All out for God. It's like a, if you're in love with a girl, you go all out. I, I'm in a college Bible study at Grace Church, and I'm a college shepherd in that group. And one of the guys just got engaged. And we have a big deal we do when people get engaged. They stand up and tell their story. This guy wrote and published a book called The Princess and the Fireman. He's a fireman. The princess is the girl. And when he gets engaged, he gives her a published book he wrote called The Princess and the Fireman. She reads it all, and at the end, the fireman proposes to the princess, and the princess accepts, and they live happily ever after. That's how he got engaged. Dude, that's a lot of effort. <laughs> but when you love somebody, every girl here is envious, and every guy's going, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> right? <laughs> When you love somebody, you put out a lot of effort. All in. All you got. All on. And all out. How you doing? Successful? The only way to be successful is to honor the great and the first commandment. Now, you may feel a lot of pressure, but listen to this. God says in 1 John, you love because I first loved you. This is not about loving first. This is about loving back. One of the greatest challenges of loving God is because you haven't received the love of God. You may know about Him, but you've not experienced it. 